in my mind, the reason why the shields add to the world is now you have like a science fiction uh, setting in which you have to do a heck ton of knife fighting, right? Like, that's, <laughs> yeah. like I, I mean, how do you get past the fact that like you've got all this advanced tech and you've got all these spaceships, but really what you also want is Sardaukar soldiers fighting, you know, the Atreides in like hand-to-hand combat with like machetes, right? <laughs> so like the shields are the way to kind of create that as a world building necessity. Welcome, friends, to episode 204 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss Denis Villeneuve's 2021 film, Dune, part one. So here to sandwalk with us this week, we'd like to welcome the award-winning author of the sci-fi novels Exo, Zero Boxer, and Crossfire, as well as the Greenbone saga, an epic fantasy trilogy whose final installment is releasing very soon, Welcome back to the show, Fonda Lee. Thanks for having me back on, guys. So nothing has changed since we last had you on. I don't think anything <laughs> has been... <laughs> everything's been fine. How, how are you? I'm good. Uh, released a few books along the way, um, making it through a pandemic. You know, what to be expected. Jade War, I think, was not out when you came on last time. I think J- just Jade City was out. And now you've got Jade Legacy. Uh, I think it, I, I saw the release date, the official release date is November 30th. Is that is that holding? Is that true? Knock on wood. I'm, I'm <laughs> watching, uh, you know, the news about supply chain disruptions um, yeah. with, with uh, a little bit of anxiety. But um, hopefully everything goes smoothly and the book comes out on time. Yeah, and that's the final installment in this trilogy. Um, very exciting. And speaking of exciting, I saw you tweet about this. I think it was the first I saw it. And uh, Deadline announced that Jade City has been uh, starting to be put into production for an adaptation on Peacock, which is like NBC's streaming service. That's so exciting. Like one of our former guests is now having an adaptation made. Uh, I had to bring it up. Uh, what's what's the status with that? Is there anything you can share? Yeah, so it is uh, in development um, with uh, NBC Universal for Peacock, and um, I, I'm getting a bit of a front row seat into the adaptation process, if you will. And um, yeah. well, there's one thing I can say for sure: it's that there are a whole lot of hoops to jump through in the adaptation <laughs> process. Many, many hoops. Um, everything from you know getting writer on board and um, having. Uh, the initial outline approved and then having a pilot script written and having that approved. And, and so right now um, there has been a, a pilot script written um, and there is currently a second episode being written um, and uh, fingers crossed that, that we keep jumping through those hoops. And it's a, it's certainly an interesting process as the, as the creator of the novels to see how um things get changed and adapted and all the sort of different considerations that go into um, developing something for screen because there's things that I can do as an author that I have I, I mean as as a novelist I have complete control over the world and it's pretty much 
just myself that I have to please during the writing process. While as in Hollywood, um, there are so many other considerations, everything from, um, you know, budget and, uh, you know, who, who the executives are that are going to be potentially greenlighting this and what other projects are being developed there and um, just so many things. So who knows, maybe one day I'll get to come back and talk about the adaptation process um, in more depth. Oh, I'd love that because you know we're going to cover it, you know, when it comes out. Like, I can't wait for that. You have also written some Marvel comics since last time you were on, which I know James is a big Marvel fan. I mean, I like the movies and stuff, but he is actually a comics reader. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention that. Uh, Very cool. Yeah, I did a short run of uh, a Shang-Chi series. Um, So it was just a six episode run of Shang-Chi, which was fun to work on um, because, uh, of course, of the movie coming out. So it it was um, my first time working on a established franchise um, and playing in someone else's sandbox, so to speak. That was very different from writing novels because comics, as you can imagine, is like such a fast turnaround. Like you write the script and then it goes to production, the art comes in and then you know, the lettering, and then it's, like, published in six weeks. Unlike my fantasy novels, which is, like, takes two years to write and then another year to come out, and, yeah, it's a it's a very different process. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, Shang-Chi is now, like, I mean, he was he was well-known, but now he's, like, household name around the world because of these, these this movie that came out, and it was super massive, and uh, it was a really fun movie, too. That was awesome, yeah. And that was one of, the, one of the things getting me back into the theater recently, and speaking of getting back into the theater... We're here at Dune, which is something that we've been anticipating since Blade Runner 2049. And we, yeah. we covered that was like our third project for this for this or maybe second project, right? Uh, second. Do Android's Dream was our second project. Yeah. yeah. So it's been we've known this is coming for such a long time because it was announced fairly, fairly soon after that. I think so. Yeah. I, I want to ask Fonda, what's your history with this material with Dune, the novel? And then um, maybe talk a little bit about your theater going experience. Yeah. So I have been looking forward to this movie for so long. I think you guys actually asked um, guests was like over a year ago yeah. like what movie you're looking forward to. And and uh, this was like in the, was it 2019? It was, yeah. It was our 100th episode celebration. And we just hit our 200th episode recently and the movie still hadn't come out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it had been delayed a lot. That was for the for the 100th episode. Um, yeah. You asked what movie you're looking for to and I said Dune. And so it's, it's been a while. Uh, but yeah. I, I would definitely say, you know, there are a few books that I consider foundational texts uh, as a writer, not necessarily my favorite books of all time, but the ones that were the most influential on me. Um, one of them is The Godfather, which I came on to uh, the show to talk to you guys about way back when Ink to Film was a baby podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and We're a toddler uh, now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Dune is definitely another one. I, I, I would say um, as much, if not more so than Lord of the Rings. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't read it when I was young. Um, I read it, but I did read it early on in my writing career. So really when I was just starting to get serious about writing for publication, taking like writing as a, as, as a thing that I wanted to do um, professionally, I read Dune and it really um, had a major impact on me. Um, I think for a number of reasons, like I think of Dune as 
science fiction for epic fantasy fans. And it was, yeah. it was really a novel that um, taught me that you don't have to use medieval Europe analog to tell an epic fantasy-esque story. Um, and before Dune, I had read quite a bit of science fiction. I was had read Asimov and Bradbury and, you know, Philip K. Dick. And a lot of those science fiction stories that I'd read were very idea-driven. And Dune was one of those novels that was not at all skimpy on the ideas, right? There's so much in there about like ecology and economics and religion, but it also had this clash of noble houses level of drama and also knife fights and <laughs> sandworms and vivid world building. So it really kind of spanned this range between epic fantasy themes of prophecy and magic uh, and noble house politics all the way to hard science fiction so just like the the scope of dune in terms of spanning kind of the continuum of speculative fiction was something that really had an impact on me personally and it influenced the way that i think about writing because i would later on go to write this epic fantasy trilogy that's set in a modern era secondary world um with like asian culture influences and um it kind of uh, really cemented for me that you could do all these amazing things um, across the spectrum of science fiction and fantasy and blend them together and put them in a different world. And um, it was just really innovative. And, you know, now reading it, I read it years ago, um, but before I went in and, and watched the movie this weekend, I went back and, and just sort of refreshed. And, you know, there are things that like structurally and stylistically, like reading a, a novel that was written in 1965, like now, um, you know, are, are like that, that bug me in terms of like discarded characters or like how, how choppy the ending was, you know? So there's still things that I'm like, okay, that sort of tripped me up a little bit, but like on the whole, it held up remarkably well and it's, it's just still such a fundamentally important book to me i completely agree we we talked about the book over three episodes and we had some similar observations um i i think for me it is uh, the world building on display in in this book is incredible and and one of the best i've ever encountered and that just lines up perfectly with why i wanted to have you on to talk about this um I think a couple days ago, your episode on writing excuses, uh, another podcast just came out and um, it's one that I, I listen to quite frequently and they had you on to talk about world building. And um, they said, you're one of the masters of world building in, in fiction right now. And I completely agree. And I think that totally lines up and why I think you're a good person to have on to talk about Dune, because a lot of people, especially when it comes to science fiction, when they think about great world building, they'd probably reach to Dune. Um, and yeah, so I'd just love to hear you talk a little bit more about the ways in which Frank Herbert is able to craft this world and then the ways that the story sort of organically comes out of it. It feels like it feels like because we talked about his story seed was these dunes in Oregon that he went to and he was on this um, assignment and he was learning all the science and stuff about the about the dunes themselves. And that was his story seed for this entire book. Um, and and I, on that episode of Writing Excuses, you mentioned you had a similar sort of world first approach to Jade City. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the thing that um, 
is really impressive about Dune is that he takes everything in the story works with the world, right? Like the fact that it is this desert planet influences everything about the culture of the Fremen and their customs and the way they live. And, um, you know, the, uh, it, it undercuts all these themes of colonialism, right? The fact that this desert planet is the only source of spice and it could be made into a paradise, but intergalactic capitalism being what it is. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's not, it's being mined for this resource. And so there's just so many great plot elements uh, that spring from the world. And um, I went into the movie completely cold. I did not want to read anything about it or look at any reviews. That's hard because I know you're on Twitter and it's hard to avoid it takes. It is hard. It's very hard <laughs> to avoid. But I was just I was just diligent about it. I didn't want to have anything kind of mess with my initial impression with it. And I was so excited when I um, remember hearing uh, Denis Villeneuve was going to be uh, creating the film because I was such a big fan of his aesthetic style with Blade Runner 2049 and Arrival and Sicario, which are all films that I just love. Like he is, um, in my opinion, has such a, a distinctive filmmaking vision that I went in with really high expectations of what he could do with a world like Dune. I heard some rumblings of people sort of feeling like they weren't going to be, it wasn't going to be able to live up to the expectations of what Dune is in this, you know, epic novel like you've talked about, so foundational. And I'm like sitting here thinking like, it's Denny Villeneuve, like, what do you, like, who could we possibly be in the hands of besides him to take us on this journey? And like, we saw what he did with an existing material with, um, Blade Runner and like like how he bridged that gap and made it was wholly its own he and ha knowing that he was such a big fan of the book I knew he was going to do it justice and and um I am very happy that they decided to do it in two parts which is like a whole thing because it's only half of a story I think some people may walk out having thought that it was not necessarily what they were expecting but mm -hmm. that's the best part is that like it wasn't what you were expecting but it was a unbelievable experience in the theater and that brings me back to theater so did you guys see it in IMAX like what was it like because for for myself it was like religious experience like <laughs> the it was like my body was being shaken I was getting chills and stuff like how was it for you I did not get to see it in IMAX I saw it on on a big screen but um having seen it now I want to go back and see it again <laughs> in IMAX that was that was the yeah. one um thing that uh that I kind of regret like not um, booking ahead of time was like the IMAX <laughs> ticket, but I, but I'll, I'll get, I'll get back in there, make sure I see it on an <laughs> even bigger screen because yeah, yeah it, it was, it was amazing. Um, you know, I am glad that he is the sort of director who has the clout in Hollywood, given his track record to demand that it be done in two parts and not right. be, um, crushed down into you know a two-hour film because i don't think that would have done justice to it all i listened to an interview it was the director's cut podcast it's like the director's guild of america does a podcast and it was christopher nolan interviewing denny villeneuve about dune and uh denny mentioned that because blade runner 2049 wasn't the smash box office success that it maybe the studio thought it might have been uh he felt that that was why he he wanted to shoot Dune part one and Dune part two back to back. He wasn't able to because the studio felt it would be too expensive and all of these other variables came into play. But 
he's now saying that he it's kind of a blessing because you know a lot of things happened when during the production like uh covid (laughs) popped up and the movie was supposed to come out sooner than it did for us and now it's interesting because where we leave the story it gives i think it's a good opportunity to sort of without spoiling anything set up something that happens in the book yeah um and i think it's interesting that hours ago the part two was greenlit literally like four hours ago this will you know this will come out on a thursday so it'll have been two two days and four hours ago but Mm -hmm. uh yeah it's very exciting that we're like on the cutting i'm really happy that we're recording after the announcement because this would have sounded a lot more dated (laughs) if it had come out on thursday and we were like who knows if it'll be part two Yeah. Um, so for me, I did get to see it in IMAX. It was it was fantastic. Uh, I went early on a Sunday in hopes that it wouldn't be super crowded. It was like packed to the rafters. Every it was so full in there. Um, it's a massive theater. I I was amazed at how many people were in the showing, and I was like, well, I hope that means this movie's doing well. And it sounds like it is doing pretty well. Um, is, is if they're green lighting part two, I assume it's because they're getting money. <laughs> While we're here for real quick, because you set me up for it, it uh, opening weekend in America, forty-one million dollars in ticket sales. With it opening on HBO Max at the exact same time, people could stream it at home, which takes it to around two hundred twenty million global currently. And projections are saying it's probably going to cross three hundred million, and that's sort of the threshold for making its money back. So it's that's that's probably why it's. it's it's on its way being greenlit uh, today because the results are in and audiences like the movie and yeah. I think they want more. I, I wonder how they calculate in HBO Max numbers and stuff because that seems very tricky. Yeah, there's so much to get into with this. Should yeah. we jump into it now? Denis like, had, was against it. Let's put it yeah. that way. And also, like I, I did read that um, part two was greenlit with uh, the stipulation that it would have a, a exclusive theatrical release. Yeah, and I heard that's what the negotiations were going on. That's why it, it took a little while for this announcement to come along because it, normally it seems like it's doing well overseas. People were like, why haven't they greenlit a part two? I think what Fonda's saying is is the reason. It's because they were negotiating the fact that like Denis was like, no fucking HBO Max, okay? He's like, just theatrical. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, speaking of HBO Max, I actually did get to watch it a second time uh, yesterday. Uh, just to because I wanted to be able to like pause and take notes and it was actually really nice um, did not sound nearly as good it looked pretty good I have a pretty good TV but the sound my sound system is shit so um, it's very different experience but I was able to turn on subtitles and like catch all the stuff that I missed <laughs> I was very happy yeah. about that um, definitely recommend it even though I, 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 like, I feel like I paid my dues and now I'm allowed to watch it on HBO Max <laughs> yeah I did the same uh, I just wanted to get the double dip uh, it, you know it's a different experience at home I highly recommend anybody who's listening go see it in the biggest theater possible i'm not joking like the sound design of this film is life-changing there are certain things that you haven't you haven't heard before in a film yeah and uh and yeah visually it's just amazing we'll we'll talk some more about cinematography and all that i did want to just weigh in a little bit on on denny venu because we both love him on this podcast um and i know fonda it sounds like you're a big fan as well um and I, I don't, that's not to say he's not without his detractors. Like every now and then you do find people who didn't like the look of Blade Runner. They don't like the look of this and that. And there's some people who don't like the look of this movie. Like, believe it or not, I've seen those people on Twitter. So I know that there is dissenting opinions. Um, but I think that that, to me, that makes me like him more because he's got such a strong artistic vision that it's not going to appeal to everyone, right? Like, he's got this aesthetic that he's clearly going for in this movie, and not everyone's going to love it, but for those of us who do love it, it is just 
like transported. I, I, I absolutely adored the way this movie looks. Um, and, you know, I like the idea of an artist who isn't necessarily for everyone, but but is totally for me. So that's yeah. how I feel about it. <laughs> and I, I love it too. I feel like his style aesthetically is very spare and haunting. Yeah. And it, like, I come out of every single one of his movies and I just feel like I've, I've been transported, you know, and, and in there, there's this sort of starkness to mm. his aesthetics that I think um, some of his dis- his detractors don't like because they they feel like it's technically astounding, but has this sort of emotional distance to it. And there's a sense of, um, you know, of of maybe coldness almost. I don't agree, like I, but I can kind of see where they're coming from. Um, I happen to love it because there's almost like a documentary feel to it, like a sense of scale. And he doesn't force emotion either. Like he doesn't play up the deaths, the deaths that happen in his films. He doesn't like kind of try to draw out the emotion with like melodrama or mm-hmm. with sound. Like he just kind of lets them happen. And you you will feel like you're witnessing something on an immense scale that has this almost muted melancholy to it. And so I, I come out of every one of his films just like with this almost numb, but like in a good way. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, as far as it feeling almost like a little surgical or sort of removed, like you were saying, in a movie like Arrival, I can see it a little more. But in this one, I and I know this isn't your opinion, but anyone who was saying that, I wholeheartedly disagree. I felt like this was so I felt like there was emotion. So it was so intimate the way he was shooting some of the characters at times. And it felt grounded and human and like in this epic fantasy story that takes place on other other worlds and in a desert it's like there were times that it was so intimate and there's no vo but it's like we we kind of are getting the internal thoughts of the characters through the shot selection that's happening when we're close up on a character especially in uh, like some of the vision scenes or anything like that but uh the score as well i think like lends itself to that i feel like we're getting the emotion of the story from through the characters in a way that I wasn't even maybe expecting in such a large scale story like this. I thought it was maybe going to be more like an arrival where it feels otherworldly and removed. I will say one thing that uh, that Villeneuve does a lot is shots of people against this vast landscape. I feel like that is something that he does in every single one of his films where you almost get this sense of like um, of smallness because um, there's like these figures and he'll just kind of pull back and let you sit with the wide shot. And then he contrasts that with, like you said, James, like very close up, like intimate moments. He just has this confidence in his vision where I feel like he knows exactly what he's doing. Mm. Yeah, I feel so safe going into a Denis Villeneuve film. Like, I just know, like, I was willing to even last week, as we were ending the episode, I was like, I'm ready to see this masterpiece. And it's because, like, whether whether the story hits perfectly, whether everything was executed well, I know that it's one of the most confident and, like, visionary directors out there right now. And for, just from, like, a production standpoint, this is world-class on every level. Production design, set design, 
uh, editing, sound design, like everything is the top that you could ask for. And, um, you know, if nothing else, even if you walk out and you're like, that movie offended me in every way, <laughs> you can see the artistry in like the craft of what they're doing is on every single frame. And he knows how to linger on a beautiful shot. And I think that's something that I really look for in a confident filmmaker when there's not necessarily anything super plot relevant happening, but he's willing to say like, actually this, this shot is amazing and we're just going to linger on it for a second yeah. just to like give you the feel. And it, yeah, sure. And, and every second of this movie is millions of dollars, right? Like it's very finely cut, but he's still lingering at times. And, and I love that because it, it shows off all that beautiful work that's been done on this film, like you said. So um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, we're in the general thought section here. I think it's pretty clear we all were taken with the the visuals and the sort of uh, aesthetic experience of watching it um, without getting into any plot uh, spoilers for people who maybe haven't seen the movie. Um, what were your thoughts just overall on the story of the movie and the way that that was executed? I was um, really impressed and actually a little bit surprised by how faithful it was to the novel. And I think this goes back to what James was saying. Like, clearly, he's a fan of the book. And um, he very much wanted to bring the book to life and didn't do a lot of, um, of changes to the text other than like kind of what was necessary in order to, you know, make it fit its runtime as it, as it were. But it was like going back and, and reading the book and then watching the film, like it just, it tracks very closely. In all the research that I did, I found some fascinating things that Denis Villeneuve has stated, and it goes directly to what you're saying, Fonda. He said, quote, we're not here to express ourselves, but here to represent the book and Herbert's words. So like in these interviews and everything that I was reading, he said as much like there, there's the David Lynch film, Hans Zimmer, interestingly enough, had never seen that and was like, I don't want it to influence me one day. If I end up scoring a Dune film, I'm going to I'm going to I want to have like my own idea wow. of what I want to do. So that was interesting. But yeah, uh, Denis actually first read this story when he was 13 and he and a friend went through the process of storyboarding it on their own, even back then. Wow. And wow. Denis was saying that he was attempting to go back to those uncorrupted images that he was coming up with and dreams that he's had of it and like going trying to storyboard in that way in like sort of like the primal first reaction uh version of his 13 year old idea of dune and like he's doing what he set out to do which was please anyone who's read the book and i think if you've read the book if you haven't i understand maybe having some qualms here and there and it's not you know you may be lost along the way at some points but if you've read the book, I think you can appreciate like how much effort he's putting into it. I think uh, tonally, thematically, like just the mood, like everything to me actually lines up with the book. Like it, it all felt novel accurate. Um, that just the sense of epicness and danger, um, just sort of the 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 politicking, like all of that had the same texture as it did in the book um, for the vast majority. And I think for some people who are maybe major book fans, um, there's always going to be a possibility that because we're leaning on Villeneuve's vision that he came up with when he was 13, right? Like, and then obviously modified over time, but like everybody who reads a book has a different experience because like half of what you, what you get in a book kind of comes from your own mind. So of course, 
some people have very strong feelings about how things should look and be, and, and sometimes it won't line up. So there's always room for that. But I mean, this is just like, it's just as, about as good as you can get. Um, Storyline for me, uh, I, I completely agree with everything you said. Like, I think that, you know, the char- characters are so well performed. This cast is incredible. Um, just unbelievable cast. And um, so exciting. Uh, there's just so many things to praise about the plot and story of this movie. Um, my only minor criticism that I'll put out there, and I'll, I'll maybe defend it more later when we can get into spoilers, is that I felt like the pacing suffers a little bit in the like final third-ish of the movie, maybe the final just little bit of the movie. Um, and we can talk about why I felt that way. Um, but it's okay because like ultimately this is a part one. And so it's always going to feel a little off when you don't kind of get the full story. And I think that might be a, a bit of a remnant of that. Um, and some people might, might judge it harshly because they're kind of considering just as a standalone film when really it's not intended to be. You mentioned cast. So I do think we have to talk about the cast now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have a story that I want to tell as we were walking out of the theater. My girlfriend left to go to the restroom and she came back and reported that she heard a group of girls gushing over Oscar Isaac. And uh, I and like I've heard everyone since on social media everywhere. Everybody's losing it about how attractive he is, how amazing he is. And I, I the only reason I'm surprised by that is that like, yeah, that's been the case for years. Like I've, been, <laughs> I've had a man crush on this guy for years now. And like he's pure charisma and people are just now realizing like, oh, my God, like forget Timothy Chalamet. I want I want the daddy. I want. <laughs> that's right. Hardcore DILF energy there. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah, I love the casting here. I mean, I was just so quickly brought into each one of the characters, like immediately suspended disbelief and was like, yep, yep, Jason Momoa is now Duncan Idaho. Like, it just, <laughs> I, I found it very easy to sink into the, into the characters as portrayed by the cast. Um, I did um, really love the casting of Sharon Duncan Brewster as Kynes. And mm-hmm. I thought that was um, that was a, a great choice. I think to not only to to bring more women into the cast, but to to um, take that character of Kynes and and make um, them more interesting, uh, mm-hmm. even more so, you know, than the book, and, and add like a different, more updated layer. Um, I, you know, minor quibble that uh, that uh, Lady Jessica does not look like she is old enough to have a son who appears to be in his twenties, <laughs> <20s. laughs> but like, okay. She's from a water planet, you know, she's a noble woman. She probably has really good skincare routine. So like, you know. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I just looked at her age just out of curiosity. Uh just uh, we were talking about Rebecca Ferguson, who I think right. did a fantastic job, by the way. Um she is thirty eight. So yeah, she is pretty young, I guess, to have a depending on when she had him, I guess. <laughs> you could just you could just mar- maybe buy it. Um I was reading that that uh Timothy Chalamet is only twelve years younger. Oh, then her. <laughs> yes. Well, that would explain. Yeah, that that's not going to look right. Um, <laughs> but by the way, uh, she was a, a, a favorite from the Doctor Sleep coverage we did because she was uh, Rose the Hat. Yeah. In that in that movie, so, um, she was great in that. So I was I was happy to see her return. A bunch of these actors we've we've got to touch on in different projects over the years. Always cool. Um, shout out to Stellan Skarsgård uh, as the Baron. As very frightening. Um, 
I think very novel accurate and he's he doesn't have a lot of screen time but when he's on on screen you just are watching him like like yeah for everything yeah, he does magnetic absolutely the apocalypse now reference when he's like coming out of the black and it's completely covering his face the like the the pool of black yeah mm-hmm. okay I didn't I didn't catch that as a reference but uh yeah I like that I like that yeah um, now that you're mentioning it I totally see it yeah yeah one thing I want to mention about the casting is they deliberately I think, leaned away from Herbert's analog of the Fremen as being coded Middle Eastern. Mm. Um, and like if you, the books feel like the Fremen are, are drawing pretty heavily on, uh, on the Middle East and on Islamic culture. Um, and I think with this film, they deliberately steered away from that. Um, I have seen uh, some criticism of the fact that by leaning away from that, it kind of erases the very obvious influences that Herbert had in the novel to the extent that there aren't any um, actors of Middle Eastern descent in the main cast. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's a really interesting sort of ethical question that I, I do see get raised a lot, I think rightfully so. Um, I think people have also noted that there wasn't a lot of uh, Muslim or Middle Eastern people um, behind the cameras either or on the set period. Um, so you don't have the same excuse for that, right? Like you could have these people on camera and like help, you know, help bring more authenticity to what you're showing. I, I would rather see something more novel accurate and just the idea of taking out a section of people that are not represented well in film. And like, I, I just feel it feels weird to me that that would be the case. Like, why not keep that mm-hmm. representation and, yeah. and it would be even more accurate to the novel. It it, it does feel like a weird decision. Yeah. It is. It is kind of an interesting like I like the idea of making the Fremen less homogenous. Right. Like there is kind of a variety of people who, who seem to make them up. Um, but yeah, you still probably should have had a few prominent Middle Eastern actors, I would assume would have been yeah. doable. Yeah, it does feel like a bit of a miss because of how much Herbert influence and his inspiration came from that part of the world and from that cultural heritage that yeah. you know it would have been nice to see that we talked at some point in the coverage about how clearly herbert was influenced by lawrence of arabia right and and that's the you know the key i think touchstone for this and to, and to not have that represented in something that's clearly almost a, a sci-fi reference of Lawrence of Arabia in ways is is definitely weird um and and Lawrence of Arabia definitely there are shots in this film that I'm like Denis Villeneuve is referencing Lawrence of Arabia here there's like expansive shots that Fonda was mentioning earlier and 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 some of that It, it also kind of felt to me like uh this world could exist in the same world as our heptapods from Arrival because like the ships and stuff had like kind of a similar tech I don't know like I I don't think he was doing that on purpose maybe that's just the white the way he likes to design spacecraft but the um sort of the immensity like you were talking about the the way they move in almost an otherworldly fashion and they they hover and um the way they twist and turn in the air and i don't know there's just so, so many cool shots looking up at these spacecraft coming out of the sky and how um sort of awe-inspiring that can be and that gave me very strong vibes from Arrival because it definitely felt the same way in that movie. I'm sure that Denis is happy to hear that and not that you felt strong Star Wars vibes because the elephant in the room is that like, you know, Star Wars was 
inspired by Dune in yeah. some ways. And, mm-hmm. there, you know, that was something that they had to address in, in the des- production design process is like, how do we make this not look like Star Wars? Because it's a, you know, space opera. We got to do something different. And I think they achieved that well. Like, it feels entirely its own thing. It's so, this is so cinematic. The way that the Bene Gesserit is like not only represented as an audio form and like the sounds that we're getting, but like visually, there's like a look to the Bene Gesserit power as well. And like a lot of that stuff is just so creative. Yeah, the world building is really something to behold because I feel like I've been waiting for decades to see some of the things that I saw in this film. Like the shield fighting was yeah. just so cool. And, yeah. you know, and the sound. I, yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the ornithopters. Mm, um, look like, like dragonflies. And, right, right. Yeah. The oh, dragonfly cool. look to them. They're more insectoid than I thought they would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they were cool. And, uh, you know, the spice harvesters, the still suits, like all these things, um, I I felt like, you know, we've been waiting for years to see them represented and and finally got them. Yeah, the shields in particular, I think the decision to have the the blue-red dynamic for like when you're actually penetrating versus when you're not, it's such a simple decision to make, but it's so easy to spot and track and understand. Um, And then that little world-building element, uh, I was noticing... It, it, it bleeds over into other things. So like when, um, well, this is a spoiler. All right, I'm going to touch back in on this once we get to the spoiler section, which it sounds like we are geared up and ready to go. We're close to, to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're close. You mentioned the ornithopters and Denis is known for shooting almost everything in camera. He doesn't want 3D environments. He doesn't want to like have the film be this like computer created. It's not shot like the scene. Mandalorian you're saying. Like on a, on well, a that's stage like even that. that that's volumetric. The yeah. volumetric is is more practical than something like, uh, you know, something entirely created in a computer, three D space mm. where they manipulate everything. There was never anything shot through a lens. Um, so just to talk about that a little bit, he all he shoots what's called what are called plates. Which if you've ever done any VFX stuff, it's it's the the frame that where they're you're gonna have actors or or ornithopters, whatever's coming through. Uh, without that in it so that you can reference it later for VFX. So he shoots his plates and then he has references for the ornithopters. They use helicopters. So they 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 take out the helicopters and they put in ornithopters. So just to, to like take it down to that level of filmmaking and say like, no, I want to shoot it because I feel like it, it gives it that more grounded look. Yeah, you have to be someone like Denis Villeneuve to go to somebody, you know, the money people and be like, right. we're going to need three helicopters flying to this shot and then I'm going to take them out and it's just for reference. <laughs> I can't tell you the number of times that I heard him say like, I'm not worried about the budget. I wasn't worried about the budget and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, it's because he's a master from it. He's in that class of like Nolan and, and like Scorsese and like some of these people who can just do anything they want and they figure it out eventually for in the budget department. They'll, they'll find yeah, a way to it. Make must it be work. nice. Like I wish, I wish more filmmakers got that, got that Agreed. freedom mm-hmm, because definitely. It, it's, it's pretty rare. One of the things about the VFX shots is uh, lighting. Uh, Denis mentioned how important lighting those scenes is in, in order to make the VFX look, you know, perfect. Things like the the sandworms that we're going to talk about at some point, they it has to be shot perfectly with the perfect lighting. And he said that his year working with Roger Deakins on Blade Runner twenty forty nine really like informed a lot of that and helped him like achieve that for this film. So you know we have Roger Deakins to thank to sort of train up Denis Villeneuve right. in, in like VFX environments like that. You said he's not the cinematographer for this movie. 
Um, but no. it, it does it, it does feel like visually similar in a lot of ways. So I'm interested if like if, if what's the chicken and egg there? You know, like where where is Villeneuve like thinking about all the stuff that Roger Deakins brought to the table and going, I want to use that in my other movies. Or, or what? Yeah, I don't want to take anything away from Greg Fraser, who is the cinematographer for this movie. Yeah, uh, just because, like, you know, I'm sure he's a great artist, and and I'm sure Denis Villeneuve is also like very, he's a very singular vision. So, like, his, I'm sure his director of photographies or cinematographers are are executing that as he would like it. Greg Fraser was most known for Rogue One, oh. a Star Wars story, and Zero Dark Thirty. Oh, okay, this. cool. Oh, oh, I can see that now. All right, one more story, and then we'll get into our spoiler plot talk. Okay. This is such a fun story. Sound designer Mark Mangini uh, reached out to someone named Danny Connor Wild. I don't know if you've if you're familiar, but she had a video go viral like two years ago of baby red squirrels eating, and she's a wildlife photographer. Oh. And she decided to get close, and she because she she felt like uh, the photo represented well what she wanted to, but she also wanted the audio of the little squeaking that they made. And so she got close, recorded that audio, and then put it online, and it went like insanely viral, like 15 million views in a day or something like that. Huh. And Mark Mangini, the sound designer for Dune, reached out and said, hey, I'd love to use that sound for a movie. And she was like, what movie? And he was like, look at my IMDb, and I think you'll probably be able to figure it out. <laughs> and it happened to be Dune. And what he was reaching out for was that was the perfect sound that he was looking for for a long time uh, to represent uh, Moadib in the film it's the desert mouse if you if you're not familiar. the little desert mouse yeah it's been on the it's been on twitter all over people love it <laughs> so it was really cool she reached out to him uh right before this was like you know a few days ago and she was going to go see the film and she got to interview him and talk to him a little bit about it and he talked about the process of going through a film and like seeing what sounds need to be created and and the way that they manipulate audio in the same way that they manipulated this red squirrel audio to make it moadib uh for dune and uh I just thought it was really cool to think about like creating sounds for ornithopters and worms and shields, all that stuff. He said that they they start from somewhere acoustic and organic, like somewhere practical Mm. and then manipulate from there and layer on other other sounds. Um, He mentioned one of his first films was Gremlins and he used his cat for the for Gizmo's uh, (laughs) noises that Gizmo would make. How about that? Okay, well, I think it's time to jump into the plot here. Duke Leto I of House Atreides, ruler of the ocean planet Kaladin, is assigned by Padishah Emperor to replace House Harkonnen as fief ruler of Arrakis. Arrakis is a harsh desert planet and the only source of spice, a priceless substance that extends human vitality and is critical for interstellar travel. In reality, the Emperor intends to have House Harkonnen stage a coup to retake the planet, eradicating House Atreides, whose influence threatens the Emperor's control. Leto is apprehensive but sees potential to ally with Arrakis' native population, the Fremen, as the first step towards increasing the Atreides' standing in the Landsrad. Leto's concubine, Lady Jessica, is an acolyte of the Bene Gesserit, an exclusive sisterhood wielding advanced physical and mental abilities. Although Jessica was instructed by the Bene Gesserit to bear a daughter whose son would become the powerful Kwisatz Haderach, out of a love for Leto, she bore a son, Paul. Throughout his life, Paul is trained by Lido's aides, Duncan Idaho, Gurney Halleck, and the Mentat, Thurfer Hawat, while Jessica trains Paul in Bene Gesserit disciplines. Paul confides in Jessica and Duncan that he is troubled by visions of the future. Because of these visions, the Reverend Mother, Gaius Helen Mohame, comes to Kaladin and subjects Paul to the Gom Jabbar, a deadly test to assess a subject's impulse control, which he passes. Okay, so let's start with that Gom Jabbar scene. <laughs> 
It's exciting. I, I think that this is like exactly what I was expecting. And the, the level of detail throughout these scenes is just like, I, we've talked about it yeah. already, but masterful. I love the Bene Gesserit's costuming with the- f- Costuming all around, right? Yeah. I think I tweeted something about how I wanted to know where uh, House Atreides gets their outerwear. Because I want <laughs> yeah. like the, the coats that they're wearing on Kaladin. It's so cool. Where's, where's their, their autumn catalog? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, the, so the veil over the Bene Gesserit, I thought that was so yeah. powerful. And then that yeah. scene, Charlotte Rampling uh, is so intimidating in that scene. Yeah. It's so powerful. Yeah. And I just love the the back and forth. You see like the innocence of, of Paul sort of leave as he realizes how intimidating this, this figure is and uh, how his mom has kind of brought him into this room to, for a test that could potentially kill him. And, uh, and then there's the moment where she seems like she f- almost like can see that Paul is potentially more than meets the eye and she she sort of is like okay the test is over now Mm. um i just thought that that scene was was like a great representation of what's in the book yeah early on in in the film i really liked seeing some of the other planets so i think um you know obviously arrakis is so well um developed but also getting to see kaladan and the harkonnen homeworld of getty prime um that was so those were those were also just amazing world building pieces as well yeah yeah and then uh, i think we even see the prison planet which i'm drawing a blank on the name of it but um although i think they call it the the sardaukar emperor right. emperor's army planet or something they, they they don't they don't call it a, pr- a prison planet in the movie but it's a prison planet in the book but um then there are prisoners so i was like i think that it's still a prison planet they just didn't call it that and it immediately sets these houses up as being you know quite obviously different from one another as the Harkonnens are, are beastly and, and pale and bald and strange and, you know, seem to love BDSM wear and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently they, uh, I, I remember reading somewhere that uh, the idea behind the design of the Harkonnen world homeworld was that they had destroyed the ecology of their planet. Mm. So they lived in a completely artificial environment uh, you know, maybe they're just surrounded by plastic and, you know, they don't get any sunlight. And so that's why they're so pale. Oh, and that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and, and again, I'm sure he was able to draw on stuff from later novels, which I haven't read, but I'm sure that some of this stuff is probably in those, I would assume. I was reading that uh, Denis was saying the hardest part to edit of the film was actually the beginning because he, of course, wanted it to be satisfying to hardcore fans, but also needed it to be presented in a clear way that would sort of line up all of these dominoes they need to set up in order and, and, you know, have it be satisfying and also clear seems like such a difficult task to show all these different worlds and get everybody onto Arrakis is like a tall task. Yeah, I definitely felt like the way he did it was he focused really closely on Paul and Jessica. And he really, this is really their film. And that comes through um, really strongly because I felt even more uh, connected to Paul as a character in the film than I did in the books. I agree. Um, because, uh, like, I, I mean, Paul was f- fine in the book, but he never really, um, I never really felt that attached to him when I was reading the novel in the same way that I did in the film. Um, the flip side to that, though, is that some of the secondary characters don't get as much uh, emphasis. So, for example, the Mentats, um, like uh, Thufir Hawat, 
and uh, and um, Pytar, the Harkonnen, Pete- yeah, Peter yeah. DeVries. They seem to have very minor roles in comparison to the book, where, for example, in the book, the whole intrigue around the presence of the traitor with um, Thufir Hawat being certain that there is a traitor in the Atreides household, and he has this conversation with Jessica, and you, and in fact, the books are set up in a way that we know that there is a traitor. We know that Leto is going to be betrayed, and we find out pretty early on that it is Yui. And then the suspense is really like, how does that happen? While as in the film, that is pulled back on. And so the the betrayal, I know we're, we're moving past the Gom Jabbar scene a little bit now, but like that <laughs> all comes on much more suddenly. And some of the secondary characters, I think get pushed aside more in favor of focusing on Paul and Jessica. Yeah, I, I think that's totally true. And, and Dr. Yui is a character who is much less, expl- I mean, we get a little bit of why he b- betrayed him, but we, we just know a lot less about him in the movie. Um, but yeah. before we get away from the very beginning, I do want to just re- circle back to the movie actually starts with, um, I think it's pronounced Chani in the movie, but I think it's Chaney, Chaney. in the audiobook. So I, I have two different pronunciations in my mind. I don't know what's accurate anymore. Um, but yeah, Chaney, that's what I called her in the previous episodes. Um, she talks at the beginning and is like clearly a, kind of a part of the Fremen fighting force. And I was glad she did because otherwise she kind of disappears from the movie for a really long time. <laughs> right. Well, that's one of the main things I've heard too is like a lot of people who love Zendaya yeah. want to see this film. Like, and we're Zendaya? like, well, she was in she was in seven minutes, and uh, the trailers <laughs> would not have you believe that. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, I can see that, and I'm glad they they had her do that at least just to give her something to do. I hope that people. The implication is that like she'll have more to do yeah. in the next film. Obviously, yeah, absolutely. And and then the the you mentioned before that you liked the way they handled the Benny Gesserit voice, and I think they just called the voice. Um, and I agree. It's like that's such a hard thing to pull off in a movie and have it be believable and like as scary as it would be. And yet the way they layer the voices, it isn't like what I would have imagined it sounds like, yet it, it's so good. It's like, it's very weird. It sounds like multiple people talk, talking at the same time. And then mm-hmm. um, the way that I think, I, I'm not sure exactly if this is true or not, but I think they, they um, would have people move in a, such a way, like very quickly or something. It was something unsettling about the way they would they would comply with the voice which also showed it being unnatural. And there was just a couple of little tricks here or there that really sold this on being a, a, you know, an incredible power that would be very frightening if you met somebody who had this ability. I heard Denny uh, speak about how, how they represented that. And he wanted it to seem like the characters fell into like a mini coma or something like they almost like the way that the camera draws away from them, they fall out of focus and and then like it's so quick, everything's cut very quick. Yeah, that's what I'm um, talking about—the quick cuts. Yeah, yeah, it it works very well. And and, and another thing that that Denis Villeneuve mentioned in an interview, he really wanted to focus on how powerful women are in this story, and that was part of the idea um, with Kynes, uh being a woman in this film and Jessica being important and Cheney and and basically all three of these women are shaping what's going to happen to Paul. And specifically, everything going on with the Bene Gesserit, he like if you hear the score, uh, the sort of voices are all female. Um, there is like an emphasis on on a lot of that stuff. And, you know, I, I like that. And I'm like, I don't know. Part of me is like there's still not a ton of female representation in the <laughs> film. And like it yeah. doesn't necessarily feel like enough. But I do love that, like the idea of the story being like driven through the, this sort of female power and specifically to get to the voice that you're talking about. Um, it's like 
the idea was to have like all of the ancient Bene Gesserit speaking at once and yeah. like so layering many, many different women's voices uh, on top of Jessica's or Paul's or whoever's speaking. Uh, I thought it was so effective. Like I said, that's like I was getting chills in the theater with some of those moments too. like the way it was so it was so intense. It was just like the way that it would come on and it was like so sharp. Okay, so this next section, later Moheim instructs House Patriarch Baron Vladimir Harkonnen to spare Paul and Jessica during his coup, which he duplicitously agrees to. House Atreides arrives at Arakin, the stronghold of Arrakis, formerly held by House Harkonnen, where Idaho and advance party have been learning about the world and the Fremen. Leto negotiates with the Fremen's chieftain Stilgar and meets planetologist and imperial judge Dr. Leet Kynes. Kynes informs Leto Paul and Halleck of the dangers of spice harvesting, including giant sandworms who travel under the desert. During a flight, they spot a sandworm approaching an active harvester. Leto rescues its crew before the sandworm swallows it. Paul is exposed to the spice-laden air and experiences intense visions. I can I can get into some of the stuff now I was kind of sitting on, but um, I, th- I think at some point we saw this weird spider being uh, over on the Harkonnen homeworld. It has human hands, and it's crawling around. Oh, my God. Horrifying. Oh, right. That was freaky. What was that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's so interesting. Anyway, um, <laughs> I just had to mention that because it's so weird, and it's like a little weird detail that I love. Um, just as, a, as an aside, in the credits, uh, it's called Human Spider Proxy. Really? Okay. okay. Whatever that means. Spider Proxy. All right. Well, I mean, it has human hands, so I, I can see it. Um, I do. Okay. So I, you know, as much as I'm gushing about this movie, I wanted to point to things that I was like a little mixed on as much as possible. Um, you're not allowed to do that on this podcast. (laughs) No, just to stay, just to stay true. One of the things that for me that like when I first heard it was fine, but especially in the rewatch, um, I didn't love. And that was the line where, um, Leto like says desert power. And then it gets repeated by people a few times with so like desert power, see desert power. And like, to me, it just, I don't know. It was a little like cringy almost like a little bit too broad. It just like, it felt simplified in a way that I didn't like. Now I'm open to other people disagreeing. So I'm totally open to that. I just personally didn't love the line. Like it was, it was something about it rubbed me the wrong way. I, I get that. Yeah. It does seem like it's not the, the strongest line, but to me it felt just like so colonial, like to, to, mm-hmm. like to where I was like, ew, like you're going to like, you're trying to take these people's desert power for your own. Yeah. It like, kind of undercuts his like human, like, cause he's a very human focused person and he cares about people. Right. And when you start talking about desert power, it, it almost sounds like very strategic. Yeah. I, I like the character overall. I think he, he. Lido. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think he was very charismatic. Yeah. He was the leader that we wanted. And, um, you know, what eventually happens is, is pretty heartbreaking. But uh, let's talk about the sand, like going on the flight yeah. and like seeing the sandworm and, and how that was all represented. Yeah, the the sandworm was not entirely what I expected. Um, like we can talk about the look of the sandworm, but it definitely had a uh, sort of a prehistoric look to it and when it first showed up i immediately thought of the sarlacc pit in mm-hmm. return of the jedi yeah <laughs> that was definitely like the, with the you know the the maw with the teeth going in um that was my first thought when i saw it yeah was the sarlacc pit always a reference to herbert sandworms probably <laughs> i mean you there's definitely a lot of 
cross fertilization. I mean, you can yeah. see, you know, now between with the empire, the two and, franchises, yeah. yeah, have have both had um, so many uh, b- movies and books that you know, there's probably creative um, juices mm-hmm. that are flowing both ways. Tremors has to be a reference too, right? <laughs> Tremors is like straight up right. like sandworms. Yeah, like little sandworms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was surprised, actually, speaking of um, when Paul gets his first vision, how well the prophetic powers were represented in the film, because I wasn't sure how they were going to do that. Um, And I could see it becoming confusing or just trippy and and weird. But um, I think the fact that they kept bringing it back to his visions of Cheney helped ground it a little bit and prevent it from just seem seeming way too like superhuman and and uh, psychedelic so um the way that they show him having like these moments where he's exposed to the spice and he's having these prophetic powers in a way it was almost easier to evoke in film with these visual just flashes that he's having than it even was in the novel because when you read it, it almost gives it even more importance because you're like, oh, the author's like telling me what to what to see right now. Whereas in film, you can sort of flash images by people and hopefully right. they'll miss some of it. Yeah. Right, right. I think that also helps with one of the things you were talking about before with Paul Atreides um, and why I also, I agree, I, I, I connected a little bit more with the character. I think those visions sold me on him being a teenage boy a little bit more mm-hmm. than I than I believed it in the novel where he really behaves like an adult pretty much the whole time. Um, but the idea of him fixating on this vision of this mysterious woman, um, I totally bought that <laughs> for a yeah. teenage boy, so I got it. Um, and it's almost more important than whatever other stuff's going on in the visions, uh, it seems like. Um, and then, yeah, he sells that with, like, subtle things later, too. Like, he has, like, a little smile here or there, or he looks, like, kind of awkward at times. And it's not it's not um, very overt and obvious all the time, but I think there's a lot of subtlety uh, with uh, Chalamet's performance that, that sells a lot of that, like, immediate attraction he has to Cheney, but also um, his, like just awkwardness around her. And he and also the fact that he's been having visions about her. I'm sure that's incredibly weird. So, yeah. <laughs> Which I know we're getting ahead of it. Anyway, so <laughs> we were talking about the visions, but I, I did want to talk about this whole spice um, scene with the worm. Um, one thing they left out that um, I remembered in the in the in the book was the um, the identifying of uh, Leto being the one who saw the worm, and I thought it was a really cool detail in the book where he he finds out that whoever spots the worm does the worm spotting or sign worm sign or whatever it is um, gets a certain amount of money. And then he gives all of his money that he would get for having spotted to the workers on the on the um, spice harvester. And I, I really like that detail in the book. I understand it's probably cut for time. Um, they kind of do a little nod at it. But um, in overall, I think that scene works really well, even despite uh, certain things that were just really cool in the book, not not making it onto the screen. Um, but yeah, I still liked it. Um, and with as our first look at spice, really, right? Like, I guess we've kind of seen it before, but we see this on a red dust um, that I assume smells just like cinnamon and, uh, <laughs> at, you know, getting everybody super high, especially Paul, it seems like he's like tripping out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That scene had so much tension. Like, I, I love that scene. I thought that was like that, that scene propelled me through any of the stuff that I felt like was, was, um, 
maybe harming the pacing scenes um, like this i didn't I have any like problems with the pacing until later to, to me the yeah. whole start of this movie is just fantastically paced yeah um, to be honest with you like i i up until the end of the film i was so preoccupied with and of course i was enjoying the film and and like just like taking it all in but i was also thinking like okay how much more are we gonna get like i hope we get more <laughs> i hope we get this i hope we get mm-hmm. that and uh it honestly flew by yeah. a two and a half hour movie that felt like it was like an hour. I, and a half. I was, I really had the same reaction where I feel like it was shorter than it was. Yeah. Yeah. It, and maybe that's because, you know, I'd read the entire novel and I knew that the entire <laughs> novel could not be um, shown in this, in this first film. Um, but I do think considering everything that he covered and how faithful he was to the book, that the pacing was very well done. So Paul walking off this ornithopter like into to go save people and then being hit by the spice and the way that scene is one that will stick with me forever because of the ways that like it was so beautiful. Like it was like this close up of him and like the spice flying by his face. And then we were starting to get flashes of visions and then it goes in. I think this is when we go into the full on vision of him like later, right, with uh, he and Chaney like up in the looking down at the warriors like on calendar oh, yeah, or whatever yeah. that would be like a future mm-hmm. vision um i that scene was just like really affecting to me and then and then like of course um gurney like runs out and like brings him and they like run towards the ornithopter and, and then like, make it like last second yeah. and look down looking down at the at the, the the carnage of the worm just like swallowing it. it was just like my my jaw was just <laughs> open this entire scene. well i i particularly love the uh the effect that the worm has on the sand while it's approaching where it oh, becomes yeah. almost like quicksand you can't you can't move in it that's terrifying right like the idea that you would get stuck in it of course we even say that see that pay dividends later in the film but um mm-hmm. so cool that like vibration making it almost like water and we also get a you know the idea that that's how they're able to travel through sand like they do after a failed attack on Paul's life by a Harkonnen agent, Leto places his soldiers on high alert. Souk Dr. Wellington Yue disables Arakin's protective shields and allows the Harkonnen army and disguised Sardaukar troops to overwhelm the Atreides forces. Yue incapacitates Leto and tells him he made a deal to deliver him to the Baron in exchange for his captured wife. Yue replaces one of Leto's teeth with a poison gas capsule and is killed after delivering the Duke. Leto releases the poison gas, killing members of the Baron's court and himself, but the Baron survives. Idaho escapes and steals an ornithopter, but Paul and Jessica are captured. Harkonnens take them to the desert to die of exposure, but they overpower them using the voice. Finding a survival kit left for them by UA, they spend the night in a tent. Wow, so many great scenes here. (laughs) Where do you want to start, Fonda? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is really where I feel like it rose to the level of, of Shakespearean tragedy, Right. And just everything um, snowballing and coming crashing down and uh, Leto's death just really hit. Um, I think that one of the reasons that Paul feels uh, more con- more real to me as a character in the film than he even necessarily did in the novels is the relationships that... Uh, the film took to establish with the other characters. So like there's the scene back on Kaladin when he's talking to his dad and they're, they're walking and, and speaking about the house, the future of house Atreides. Um, you know, there's the scenes where he runs and he hugs Duncan, right? Yeah. When he, when Duncan comes Anybody back. he's hugging, like, yeah. Yeah, loved, exactly. He would hug everyone. I, I was like, oh man, they, they all love each other. Let's make sure nothing bad happens to anyone yeah. in this group. I think Jason Momoa even did the, like the meme where he was sneaking up behind, um, the guy who plays Superman, whatever his name is. 
and The Witcher. Oh, Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill. Yeah. There's a meme of him sneaking up behind him, and he's like crouched down like he's going to give him a big hug. People meme this yeah. all the time. Um, and he, he literally does the exact same crouch, and then he does the hug to... Um, to Paul, I don't know if he yeah. did that on purpose or if that's just how he does it. <laughs> but um, are you guys are fun. you guys just in shock that like <laughs> I know we had seen it on social media, but they sh- they shaved off Momoa's beard? Interesting choice. Yeah, I don't know. I I honestly it grew on me very quickly. I I was into it. I was like, this guy is just a good looking man. Yeah, I I, I think I prefer the beard, but it it made him it definitely made him seem more buttoned up, I guess, to not have the big beard. Yeah, I don't know. I guess that's why they did it, but. And also just to differentiate. Maybe they only wanted Leto to have like the only like sweet beard. Right, right. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, you got to you gotta be a duke before you can hang it up beard like that. You can like have that. a beard like that. <laughs> um, oh, man. So speaking of, let's talk a little bit about Duncan Idaho because he is, I think, a, a crowd favorite. I think everybody loves Duncan Idaho. He's like the best fighter, I think, um, that we see, at least, at least that we actually get to see uh, in combat. And... Him escaping during the assault is really cool. One of my favorite sequences, um, he steals the, he like doesn't steal it, I guess. He, he takes one of these ornithopters from some Harkonnens that he kills, and then he blasts a bunch of their ships, and then he has this exciting chase with like a laser following him through the city. Um, just very cool. I don't know. I, I really like his character, and um, you know, I'm rooting for him. We see Dave Bautista show up as Raban, and he's like, chopping off people's heads out of spite i guess it's like the only thing he does but he you just get a feel for what kind of guy this is um, they set up the fact that he just hates a trade yeah he like really he hates right. all right but uh another scene i wanted to jump back to is the scene with the hunter seeker that comes for paul in his room and so he's watching this like the encyclopedia sort of tell him about Arrakis, oh, and and that's when we quick, first see a Moadi. When he went onto that thing, he should that should have been Christopher Walken showing him how to do the sand walk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure, that would have been amazing. I didn't even think about that. So uh, this is the thing I was talking about earlier with the world building, um, and I wanted to, to ask you about this Fonda too. But it's also just something I noticed: the shields and the way they represented them um, carries over to the scene where the airfield's getting blown up, and you see uh, these missiles coming down, blowing things up, and sometimes. It would hit things and there wouldn't be a shield on it because they hadn't activated it yet or the shield had been knocked out by a previous hit and it would explode in a normal way. But then sometimes it would it would blow up like within the shield and you would see the fire reach to the perimeter of the shield and get for a moment like held in before it burst through. It's mm-hmm. such a small thing, but like such an attention to detail about like how the yeah. flames would behave while there's still a shield active. Um, it, right. There are so many little details like that in this movie that that they just nail, and and I particularly love that one. My favorite part of those bombs there is that like there were some that they were launching that were like falling slower, and yeah. we've talked about how the shields are like the faster hits don't hit them and the slower hits do. So these these bombs were falling slower, and they would hit the shields and slowly penetrate. Yeah, those were those were so cool. I mean, this is an example in my mind of um, using your world building in order to fulfill. A particular aesthetic that you're looking for like what is why are the shields so particularly cool well in my mind the reason why um the shields add to the world is now you have like a science fiction uh setting in which you have to do a heck ton of knife fighting right like, that's, <laughs> yeah. like I, I mean how do you get past the fact that like you've got all this advanced tech and you've got all these spaceships but really what you also want is uh, is like Sardaukar um, soldiers fighting, you know, the Atreides uh, security guards in like hand-to-hand combat, 
with like machetes, right? <laughs> so like the shields are the way to kind of create that as a um, as a world building necessity. And if you actually think about it, you're like, well, that it, it kind of doesn't really make a ton of sense because it would be really what would happen is someone would find a way to like, you know, I don't know, disable these shields or like a more high tech way to penetrate the shields. But uh, no, now we're all, we're all knife fighters now. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you get like a lot of just cool hand to hand combat as a result of like this one world building detail. Since, since we're talking about this, I read that fight coordinator Roger Yuan based the fighting of House Atreides on Filipino martial arts. Oh, wow. Uh, to make House yeah. Harkonnen seem barbaric, he based their fighting style on ancient Mongolian fighting styles. Um, so yeah, I just thought that was cool that he was taking those influences and apparently the Sardaukar in this adapt adaptation are, are an ins inspired by two different warrior cultures, the samurai of feudal Japan, and I'm going to butcher this, but it's the Ulfhednar guard of the Norwegian king Harold Fairhair. The samurai influence being the Sardaukar's fighting style and that they are an elite military caste while the Uf Hednar influence is the Sardaukar as a fanatical warrior cult practicing blood sacrificing and blood anointment before battle. Oh, is that what that was supposed to be? A blood sacrifice? Interesting. I think so, okay. Yeah. Um, also, they have like that throat singing is <laughs> a big part of theirs. Yeah. I, yeah. Which we, we, we want to talk about the music a little bit. Atreides, somebody busts out a bagpipe and starts walking out, and you're like, oh, that's an interesting <laughs> choice. Whoa. But as soon as the actual score comes in to accompany that bagpipe, I was yes. like, I'm sold. This is amazing. This sounds it's so, so good. good. <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, so we're talking about score for a second. Hans Zimmer apparently was creating instruments for this film because he wanted to sound like no other. He was creating instruments and having people like exp expert musicians play their instruments incorrectly and in different ways oh in, in some in some of the time so like they were looking for an entirely new soundscape for this film and and apparently Hans Zimmer was just as passionate about Dune as Denis Villeneuve was so like they were just collaborating so much together and it's funny because like there are these lines drawn uh, in production where like this is my line don't cross it if this is my, your job you stay over there I'll stay over here with my job and so sound designing and and uh, scoring a film uh, composing are two, two two entirely different things so sound design is responsible for everything besides the music and apparently there had to be conversations between sound design and Hans Zimmer the composer because he was teetering on basically sound design and some of the ways he was using the instruments to create the soundscape for this movie and apparently they were saying like it was great like you know collaborative conversations back and forth and all this stuff but i just think it's funny that a composer is almost stepping into the realm of sound design for this film the the number of iconic scores that the man has mm -hmm. <laughs> come up with is just innumerable and it's it's amazing so um yeah and this is just another one that is absolutely incredible uh, oh, wait, there was a scene in this section that I do want to talk about. It's the introduction of Stilgar. Um, he comes in, uh, Javier Bardem, who we covered recently on uh, No Country for Old Men, where he was fantastic. And he comes in as Stilgar, um, immediately just captivating the way he ignores all protocol, doing his own thing. I love the idea of, like, have a religious knife that you carry with you at all times, because then people won't take it from you, apparently. You're just like, oh, it's part of my culture. It's religiously important. They're like, oh, okay. And then you could just kill people if you want to. <laughs> um, but yeah, he comes in and then he spits. And like, I thought that was such a great moment. Where they, 
I'm really glad they kept that in there. I, I, <laughs> Josh Brolin uh, uh, as a uh, um, what's his name Gurney Gurney Howard. was just ready to <laughs> throw down with him. It's so funny. Um, and then yeah, the way Momoa sells that. Uh, oh, actually, um, <laughs> we will we we yeah. appreciate that gesture. And he like looks at that. And then he spits. Yeah, he spits, it's and great. then they all spit. It was very funny. And and I don't know, like I I, I like to think that Stilgar's just completely messing with them because he he has to know that they don't understand what this means. But he's like, I'm gonna come in and just spit on the table right in front of them, um, and just see <laughs> see how they react. It's like all a test. I feel like for the character. And Stilgar was one of my favorites in the book, so I was really happy to see him here. And I'm excited to get more of him in uh in the next movie. I hope. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I want to um, talk about the scene in the tent with mm. Paul and Jessica after they go down. And this was one of the times in the film where I felt like we got more of the humanity of Paul more so than in the books. Like there's that moment where he's having, he's just overwhelmed with spice and he's having these visions. He's sweating and Jessica tries to comfort him. And he just like, he flinches from her and he explodes and is like, you Benny Gesserit made me a freak. Like th- there was a, that moment made him really seem like this scared teenager yeah. who didn't know what was going on and just found out that his dad was dead and had been betrayed by someone in the household. Like that yeah. um, moment I think was a great one in which, uh, you know, Timothy Chalamet really sold Paul. Yeah. And he says, you did this to me. And it was like, you could tell it was just a dagger. And I want to shout out Rebecca Ferguson again, because I think she does a lot of work with with Jessica that is really good portraying this like inner struggle. Um, even going back to that Gamja Bar scene when she's standing outside and she's clearly reliving the most painful experience she's ever had. And she knows her son's going through it at the same time. So she has this moment where she like looks at her hand and she's like clutching her stomach and like almost doubled over with pain and like having a panic attack and all that stuff is all nonverbal. And like you said, there's no voiceover telling us her thoughts, which most people like we've talked about it many times when you're adapting novels, filmmakers love to do voiceover because you can get those lines in there and you can get those exact phrases. Um, But you know, this is another way you can do it. It's just very difficult. And it takes some fantastic yeah. acting, and I think they were able to achieve it here. Um, and then, yeah, the uh, the uh, the the scene that you were talking about specifically in the tent. I also love how the tent itself was like a still suit, and it like collected their moisture and and fed it back to them, and like all of that stuff working together, and the way the vibration of the he has a little device that does a vibration that's similar to how the worms do the vibration to get through this get through the sand. Again, the world building is just so good. So you mentioned the VO again. Uh, one of my favorite quotes that I read that Dania has said about anything in the film is that, uh, you know, if he wanted the inner monologue. He wanted the inner thoughts of the characters, but he didn't want to use VO. And he said, quote, I didn't want to do VO. So I got Hans Zimmer to do the VO. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Oh, so there's another part in this section. Um, man, it's just jam packed of stuff um, that actually contains my favorite sequence and perhaps favorite shot of the entire movie. Um, and that is when uh, Leto has been taken in front of the Baron and he's in the um, the dinner, uh, dining table area, whatever you would call that room, dining room. Um, and he's like like laid back sort of naked and his sprawling in this chair <laughs> and um, the Baron's just like chowing down. Um, but that's not the shot. That shot's cool. But the shot is when um, Yui is like telling the Baron what, 
you know, the agreement was. And the Baron, first off, he activates these little things on his neck, which I don't know if you noticed this, but a really cool little detail is they start to they start to glow red right before he hovers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. they start glowing red, and then we see this shot where he's kind of out of focus, and he lifts up out of his seat, and he starts hovering on along the table coming at you. That is my right. favorite shot in the whole movie. So oh, creepy, and the way it's, it's the yeah. way it's like staged, and and seeing his feet kind of dangle, and he even like touches the table at one point, it yeah. just looks so good. And then he comes down, and he's so intimidating. When now all of a sudden he's in your face, um, I love it. And it's probably my favorite, you know, Baron scene from the whole thing because he's so he's so scary in this, and he gets to he's confronting Leto, and then um, yeah, the gas sequence I thought was captured really really well. It was really scary, and like everybody's dying immediately, and I yeah. thought it, they sold the idea that his shield and then the, his hover tech and there's just enough there to buy that he's able to live when everyone else dies. Yeah, that robe, that robe was perfect. When it, anytime he was moving around, he was so much larger than life. Like mm-hmm. in every scene he was in and that robe just dangling, I'm, you know, it just looks like he's that that size. Yeah. And yeah, I'm glad that you brought up that horrifying scene where he's up in the. Uh, that'll give me nightmares forever. Where he's like up on the ceiling and he's like, Rah. yeah, yeah, and like the, the little the little guys in their suits like all take like two steps away when they spot him. Which yeah, I thought was right. Really funny. It's scary. <laughs> uh, so apparently, eight hours to get Stellan Skarsgård into the Baron. Look. Okay. Oh, eight wow. hours. Yeah. And then he has to film for ten to twelve hours a day. Oh it's gosh. Just like, oh my gosh, was he sleeping while they put it on? Like uh, like we covered in. Well, <laughs> Murder on the Orient Express? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. yeah. There, I mean, there are t- actors are, are like, you know, they're in green rooms a lot and stuff. But I mean, he's on set and like uh, ready for production, ready for shooting for a long time. And, and that that's no joke. Eight hours of sitting in a chair while people put stuff on you. Is oh, man, it makes me claustrophobic just thinking about it. <laughs> it worked really well for me, though, too. I, I heard uh, Denis Villeneuve talking about like how he kept trying to get him into scenes where he would have not have clothes on so he'd like added because he felt like he looked so intimidating when you could see his back and he's so large mm-hmm. and he added the scene where um raban comes and like he's like he doesn't have yeah. a shirt on he's like, it's like the first scene we look, see him actually i think yeah, yeah. So he like added the fact that he would have like no no clothes on for that and stuff because he just felt like it was so intimidating just a big presence and uh stellan skarsgård said that he wouldn't have done if they wanted to do it cg he wouldn't have done it but he wanted the practical and then mm-hmm. then he made the joke of like well he asked for it like he wanted it to be practical so he couldn't complain eight hours in the chair every day okay so here we go for the next section the Baron hands over command of Arrakis to his brutish nephew, Raban, and orders him to sell spice reserves and restart spice production to remunerate the cost of the coup. Paul and Jessica are found by Idaho and Kynes and head to an old research station, but are quickly tracked down by Sardaukar. Duncan and various Fremen sacrifice themselves to allow Jessica, Paul, and Kynes to escape the facility. Kynes, cornered by Sardaukar troops, lures a sandworm, which devours them along with her. Paul and Jessica reach the deep desert and meet the Fremen, among them Stilgar and Cheney, the girl in Paul's visions. Fremen member Jameis protests their admission and is killed by Paul in a ritual duel to the death. Against Jessica's wishes, Paul joins the Fremen to bring peace to Arrakis. I felt like, you know, this last chunk, for one thing, Kynes' death hit harder for me in the film. And I think um, they did a good job making it more dramatic because if i recall in the book uh kinds the uh wanders into he he is basically dies slowly with like 
vision or uh, like his father's voice in his head. And so it's kind of this drawn out. I he mean, does explode, I think, at the end because there's like a pocket of gas or something. It's like a spice right, right. buildup yeah. or whatever. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Um, but in in the film, Kynes helping Paul and Jessica to escape and then luring the sandworm and the sandworm coming in and devouring Kynes and the Sardaukar. Such a badass moment when she's like was, pounding was the really sand badass. at them. Yeah. 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 She pulls the I love that she pulls the hooks out too. Like it was so sudden. She pulls the hooks out and I was like, is she gonna get away in this version of the story? Yeah. Right. And then the knife in her back, and then she falls down and then you know, continues to lure the worm. I love that. All this run on into the last part um did feel and I think Luke, you brought this up a little bit too, felt like there were it, it was a little bit slowed because they go first to that um ecological station and um, it seems like that that's going to be a safe haven, but then the Sardaukar reach them there, and that's where Duncan makes his final stand. They have to escape again, yeah. and and so there's kind of two stages of escape, um, which I think made this section feel a little bit repetitious to me. Um, but like it didn't bother me too much because of of the the coolness of Duncan Idaho and and then a kind's death <laughs> with the sandworm, and then the knife fight, um, and and reaching Stilgar. If I have my, if I'm tracking this right, they escape um, in the ornithopter, uh, Paul and Jessica, after the, that scene with Duncan Idaho, which, by the way, it's badass how he's, like, not actually dead, and he pulls the sword out, and he kills another five Sardaukar or whatever. <laughs> Very right. cool. Um, I Actually, I love that whole sequence. And then I think they escape on the ornithopter, and they get into the storm, and um, they're getting ready to, like, almost go down, and I think he has to turn off the ornithopter, and he kind of just, like, lets it lets it take them. Basically, from that moment on is where I felt like the pacing got a little odd. And it mostly it was kind of a victim of its own amazing climactic moment because it felt like we had had like an hour long climax right before that. We'd had this incredible sequence with just from the moment that the attack happens up into that moment had just been like nonstop amazing action and just just like Shakespearean drama, like you're saying, like characters are dying, like our beloved characters and like all this stuff. And then it slows down. They crash, and we see them sort of traveling, and then this 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 um, the worm comes, and they have this moment where they're just looking at it, and it's, it's it's cool, but it's very slow compared to what we had just seen, and it really really slows down, and then finally we get their their kind of smaller interaction with the smaller group of fremen, um, and it ends up leading to a, a duel to the death, which is definitely exciting, um, but this whole sequence takes like another forty five minutes of the movie. Um, and when you're just talking about jam how jam packed the previous like 45 minutes had been leading up to that, it, it just kind of makes kind of a strange story instead of rising all the way to the end like you're used to. It kind of rises in the middle and then kind of falls off and then you get a little bit at the end with this final duel. And I think part of that is because they're setting up part two, right, like where there's going to be even more crazy stuff, which we won't spoil here. Um, so I think that's just that's what it is. I think it's just a remnant of, of setting up part two. But um, it does there's a moment where it hits that part in the story and I almost feel like, okay, I can kind of sit back now. Honestly for, and I don't know if I'm just biased, but it, it does, t it doesn't bother me. Like I'm, I'm there for the long haul. Like I don't mind the, the slow nature of the story. Um, specifically, I think because maybe I've already read the story and I know where we're heading with part mm -hmm. two in ways. Um, 
but I can definitely see people being turned off by that. It's I, it, I'm of two minds because on one hand it doesn't bother me, and I, and I can tell that they're just setting up the next movie. But on the other hand, I'm like trying to view it as just a movie, like just as one movie. Right. And, right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I thought about this after I watched the film. Right. Maybe the only potentially even better filmed version of this story would be like an HBO prestige series that got the Game of Thrones treatment. <laughs> I'd have to get $200 million budget. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where you had like even more time to develop like all the cast of characters and like the, the ones that didn't get as much development in the film, you know, like the Mentats, uh, like, um, like, like, uh, Gurney Halleck. And, um, and then you could potentially have, um, that whole cast of characters developed in all these kind of, um, moments be like episode climaxes so there's Mm -hmm. there's a version of dune that i could definitely get on board with which is like the even more fleshed out (laughs) you know like 10 episode (laughs) season one of dune but then again you know you would lose the visual impact of seeing like Villeneuve's just cinematic brilliance on like an IMAX screen yeah so um, I'm not ready to trade this thing this thing is yeah uh even and I'm glad we're getting a part two if they had tried to cram the whole thing into one movie I think it would have been a mistake you know um but yeah I I was with you I mean like and that's something my wife said when as soon as we walked out or as soon as the movie ended she was like I'm ready for another three hours like let's go like yeah yeah, like if it was I would go back into the theater yeah. like after you know going to the bathroom. Yeah, I was like, give me a give me a short intermission and then let's do part two. At some point, they'll probably do a back to back showing like that. It would be fun. I'm on on board for that. Just spend the entire day in the theater. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, and then so yeah, we get this final fight, which I'm also I'm also glad we have you here to talk about because it is a one on one duel. Which if you haven't read Jade City, um, these there are some duels in in those books that are. Uh, quite epic and fun and, and uh, really well choreographed. Um, and I thought this one was also well choreographed and, and world building becomes important too. Um, although more so in the, in the shield based combat, whereas here for different reasons, I guess, but what was your take on this final duel? What did you think of it? I, I enjoyed it. I thought that, um, you know, it was the character development of Paul kind of brought to a head in that you know he this is the moment where and it's like where, he, where he kills a man basically yeah. and it's kind of like that um you know all right you're not a boy anymore like now he now he's uh he's lost his father he's lost his home he's had to kill somebody he's made the decision he he goes against what jessica says um she was just focused on basically saving him and getting him off planet and he's like no like this is my path so um i think it was a good place to end the first movie because it does bring it really down to Paul and his agency, both in that moment acting as champion and fighting that duel and making the decision to kind of follow his destiny, if you will. Um, So I I thought it was um, that, that it was good. Um, I would have liked to see him, I get in, in the fight struggle a bit more with the fact that he doesn't have a shield um, and I thought that like it would be a closer fight because there's that moment before he fights when he has that prophetic vision of himself being stabbed. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. thought, okay, well, this is how he's going to die. And the way the fight is going to go is he, because he's had this vision, he's going to avoid this death because having seen the future, he can change it. Um, 
and he's fought all this time with a shield. So not being, you know, moving the blade slowly as opposed and to, to penetrate a shield as opposed to um, fighting without it and, and having to avoid the blade. Yeah. Um, I would have liked to see that brought out a little bit more and for him to struggle a little, a little bit more. I felt like he, he defeated Jameis really easily. Yeah. Um, especially since Shane was like, James is a great fighter. You know, you'll, you'll, he'll make it quick. He'll yeah. die quickly. He'll <laughs> like, so I, I think they could have made that a little bit more suspenseful, a little bit more drawn out. Um, but o- overall, uh, I was glad to see it end on, on that kind of personal battle note. Yeah. And it carried us into the second movie pretty well, I think. You've brought up several things I want to touch on here. So the, the visions is something that in my rewatch, I found a lot more, um, more to like dig into there because I didn't really know what to make of him. Like he, 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 he's told to like follow the friend. So he's having these visions of Jameis where it's like, follow the friend and this, this guy's going to teach you about their ways. And um, then he has the vision of Jameis killing him, but then he hears a voice say, when you like, if you take a life, you take your own or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized in my second watch that they're really setting up the idea that when he kills Jameis, he's killing Paul Atreides, like this kid version of himself, so that Moadib mm-hmm. or the... the uh, Quazak yeah, Haderach. Yeah, Quazak Haderach can come to be... The Quidditch hat trick, I think was what we said. <laughs> the Quidditch hat trick. <laughs> um, uh, can rise, right? I think is that's even the line. So, you know, it was kind of obvious in the rewatch. I was like, oh, okay, that's what they're going for. But I, I think when I first saw it, I wasn't quite following what they were going for in these visions. Because um, it is a little kind of metaphorical when you, when you thought maybe he's mm-hmm. seeing mm-hmm. an actual future. And instead he's seeing like a metaphor uh, of him killing this guy who then kills himself through the act of killing. Um, so yeah, it works better in the second viewing, I think. And envisioning what an adaptation of the first half of Dune would be, I felt like I was worried that Paul wouldn't have a clear arc. Yeah. And for me, that yeah. is the clear arc, right? Like, so he's killed, he's now killed Paul Atreides to become the Messiah figure yeah. potentially in the I future. I wonder if everybody gets that on a first viewing though. I don't know. I, I picked up on it, but okay. yeah, we've, we've read the books. So yeah. Like, we've read the books you know, and we're paying very close attention. <laughs> yeah. Um, so another thing you mentioned there was, yeah, the method of fighting. It's very cool when it's described in the book that he's almost fighting with a handicap, a self-imposed mm-hmm. handicap. He doesn't even realize is that he's mm-hmm. slowing his hits down at the last second um, because he's used to fighting people with his shield. And I, yeah, I don't know how you could, if you could show that in some sort of slow motion or something where you could show that that's happening. Cause I definitely didn't get that in the movie like that, or, you know, that was kind of omitted and that I think was an important part of that duel. So I agree that that's also like, I kind of missed that. But what I really liked. Um, and I, and I, I think this is also a kind of a detail from the book where, um, Stilgar says, is he toying with him? Because it becomes apparent that he's going to win pretty quickly. Um, and, uh, he, he realizes that he doesn't understand that this is a fight to the death and he has to kill him. Um, but that moment is a really good bit of storytelling and character work for Jameis because Jameis starts screaming at him. And I was like, what is this emotion? And I think it's like him winning the fight, but not killing him is like shameful. So I think it infuriates him. He's like, you've won kill me like like in that moment he can't believe that 
He's dishonoring him. Yeah. He's drawing it out in like a dishonorable way. And they don't really explain that, but it's there between the lines. And I I love that stuff. The one thing that that I felt wasn't super clear to an audience member was how Paul, uh, he was having these visions of a potential holy war jihad. But was it clear that he didn't want that outcome to come to fruition because i think that was a big part of the book and i don't know that it's going to be really easy to pick on the fa- pick up on the fact that like he doesn't he wants to he doesn't want that to be the case because in the visions we get i think he says as much in the tent conversation but the tent conversation had happened like an hour previously at that point right. yeah that's true right. yeah you're right yeah i mean that is the disadvantage of film right like you can't uh, unlike a novel you can't be like well here's what they're thinking as this is yeah. happening to them let me remind you of yeah. this thing that was at right, the start of right. the book yeah you don't have time <laughs> um it ends in a very small place after being so big um and i think that is kind of an interesting decision and i end up liking it um but yeah it leaves so much unfinished business that um i hope everybody it just makes everybody want to see part two instead of get really frustrated which i guess would be the worry right yeah um yeah any any what what are your sort of final summing up thoughts of this movie fonda oh gosh um i really went in with high expectations for this film and really am astounded that those were met I, I, I'm always a little bit worried when I go into a film with high expectations, um, but uh, but like yeah, you. I think somebody who has read the books a lot, who's maybe um, just has all those visuals of the world, their mind can quibble on the edges, on the details of the execution. But I mean, we got a fucking fantastic Dune movie. Like that's amazing, <laughs> right? Like after yeah. after all these decades, so um, so I came away really happy. Um, having just like experienced this film and, uh, and I have a hard time. I know we're going to talk about, we're going to pick book or film. And I, I think they, they definitely both have their, their strengths. Um, and, uh, and I'm, I think that I had really sort of the same feeling coming out of this film as I did coming out of like the first Lord of the Rings film where there was this, story that for so long people thought was unfilmable. You know, like you're never going to be able to do it justice. And I think that this film did the book justice. Yeah. As I walked out of this film, I had, I love that you mentioned Lord of the Rings there, Fonda, because like I had a similar thought process and the way that I felt like the Lord of the Rings films really inspired me. I feel like this, this film and maybe potentially the the next one will you know yet to be seen but i think it will inspire a generation of filmmakers and storytellers like this is the kind of story that i think is like it's so massive and it's so meticulously crafted that i I just felt i walked out i felt inspired i was i was so proud of just like the medium i was so i was like proud that there were artists out there like this like that were able to pull off this miracle and like I, i don't know i was just like completely in awe and um love this film yeah, I mean, I think you both you both said it really well. I completely agree. This um, this does feel like a new generation's Lord of the Rings. It's very different. I mean, the Lord of the Rings is a very different animal in its tone and visuals and everything. But just in the the fact that it is like a passion project for the filmmaker, it's you know going to be a multi parter. It's just such high level filmmaking. Um, I completely agree, and I was inspired just as a storyteller to you know just go keep working on my novel (laughs) so cool um okay so i think this is a good spot now we uh as fonda alluded to earlier we 
vote whether or not the book or film is better now. That's something we've we started doing, I think, since last time you were on. Um, and I, when we have a guest on, we like to have the guest go last. Uh, and just in case there is any ties that come up, you can be the tiebreaker. All um, right. Do you want to start, James? Sure, I'll start. I mean, with what I just said, I was completely inspired walking out. Dune, the novel, and I'm I'm really trying to just talk about the first half of the novel and compare it to the this first half of the story in the film here. That's a good point. I, we should say I think that's what we're gonna all of us are gonna do. We're gonna try and kind of compare like to like. So we're gonna go with the first half, um, and we're going to reserve the right across the board to change our answers for part two. Because who knows how part two? <laughs> That's will a good go. idea. Yep. Yeah. So if you know if part two comes around and we decide, oh, overall we've changed, then we change. We'll see. So overall, you know, I'd heard for you know decade plus how Dune was was just like this remarkable piece of work that was like almost untouchable in the sci-fi community and it inspired everything in the same way that something like Princess of Mars had like inspired so much going forward. Inspired and, Dune. <laughs> yeah. Right, which which yeah. would go on to inspire Dune. Right. So I, I love the story. I've, I engage with it in such a deep level. But being the biased film guy, I like watching this film, like I said, was a religious experience. Seeing it on screen, massive IMAX with the sound, great sound design and like the way that the the speakers are just like moving your body. It's so visceral. <laughs> it's so, it's so like tactile. I don't know. I, 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 this entire experience, like going into the film and of course the, the book heightened my, my, uh, excitement for this film. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I got to take the, the film in this case because Denny Villeneuve just delivered something that like I was expecting something of a really high level, but it was just like it exceeded my expectations across the board. Yeah. Uh, I'm in a tough spot here. You know, it's this is one of those projects and this happens every now and then where I don't pick before recording because I'm so on the fence that I'm like, I'm just going to have to decide in a moment. Um, and that's kind of how where I'm at. Um the novel is just like a legendary novel in science fiction, right? And and I hadn't read it for, for you know, for whatever reason, I just missed it. And then whenever I talk to people about it, they're like, oh, you got to read that one. And I see why. Like, it is it is incredible um, and, and worth its reputation, I think. Um, it was written in 1965, but uh, like you referenced earlier, Fonda, I think it really holds up in a lot of ways. There are some things that are a little creaky, a little dated, but um, it read really well for a book that's that old. Um, I had a lot of fun covering it, but I'm trying to compare this to just the first half. Um, I did really love the first half in the novel, but I have to remember that there's like a little bit of unfinished frustration I have around the movie where I'm like, uh, it didn't finish the story. And I have to remember that if I had only read the first half of the novel and then stopped, I'd feel the same way. So that ultimately has to be a, like, n like that has to be nil. That has to wash each other out. Um, and we're left in a place where I am now the book guy on the show and you're the movie guy, which makes me want to take the book just to like stay to our roles. But I think to be true to myself, I got to go with the movie here. Um, I think for all the reasons we just outlined, it just works. And it's such a great representation of this story. Um I've just really taken with it. Um Yeah, I think I got to give the slight nod to the movie, but... Of course, with the caveat of we're talking about adaptations here, like the movie owes everything to the to the book, right? It wouldn't exist without the book. So, of course, like we're not trying to diss the book here at all, but um, forced to choose. I'm going to go with the film. It's just it's just a masterpiece. 
What do you think, Fonda? It's also a weird. It's a weird thing to have to do to do half of a book that we've read the whole thing of. So, like, <laughs> we're sorry if it's not working for you guys. <laughs> oh, I feel like I was in a very similar mind space as you, Luke, where um, I, I'm a novelist and uh, Dune is, like I mentioned right at the beginning of the episode, such a influential and foundation text for me personally. Has had a an impact on me as a writer, the way mm. I approach my work, my craft, what I what I write about. Um, so the book is is special in a way that and nothing will ever take that away. Will never diminish it. Um, and there are things about the book um, that I think can't be translated to film, no matter how fantastic a film it is. There is something about. Um, the book's sense of historic scale, like with the epigraphs um, that suggest that this is a mythos mm. that has already happened and you're looking back on it and there is this, there's so many chewy ideas of ecology and religion and colonialism that I think are better suited to be elaborated on in in prose form um for example like the Benny Gesserit seeding the prophecy and this idea of like organized religion interacting with this prophetic um belief that has made the Fremen believe these things but they're being manipulated like you get a little bit of that in the movie like when when Jessica is is talking to Paul when they first land on Arrakis but you can't dive into that quite as much as you can in like a full length novel. Um, so there's, there's just Dune is a book that is just chock full of chewy ideas and an immense sense of scale. Um, and yet the movie was more emotionally engaging to me and made me feel connected to the characters, even the ones that I didn't have that much attachment to in the books. So Oh, it is so hard for me, but I, and I, I, the, like I said, the book is, is foundational. Nothing's going to take that away. But if you ask me, am I going to spend my time rereading the book Dune, or am I going to rewatch the movie Dune? I'm going to rewatch the movie Dune. Mm. So I'm, I'm with both of you guys. I'm going to have to, to tip the hat over to the film this time. Wow. Unanimous. In these conversations where we pick a winner, like, I feel like the the author in some like some people's view should always win and like I get it right, right? like cuz all these yeah. ideas that are so great in the movie it's coming from Frank Herbert right like and yeah. so yeah. if yeah. you want to like credit where credits due of course it would be the book but you know we're just trying to trying to weigh in on the yeah. medium I guess the film always has the advantage of seeing how an audience reacted to the book and changing yeah. things based on that yeah. and, you know, updating things as culture changes. And so like, yeah, it's a modern story in a way that yeah. the book yeah, yeah. can't. It's been updated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's an impossible task that we do for fun. So like that, that's where we have to leave, <laughs> yeah. it, unfortunately. The way that I think of it, too, is like I think the the film is a co-creation between oh, yeah. Herbert and Villeneuve, right? Like that, well, it, it- He said as and, much. And, uh, and hundreds of other people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and so looking at that, it's not like, oh, I'm picking, you know, one creator's vision over yeah. another. I feel like this is a, it's, it's clearly a blend of like two right. genius visions. He called the novel the Bible the entire time. If he had any questions, he, he went back to really? the novel. So like, you know, 
Wow, that's awesome. It's clear clear where how he felt about the novel as well. Uh, okay, so we've gone super long. So thank you so much, uh, Fonda. Thank you for spending so much time with us talking about Dune. Um, I, I we we just love it. Well, this was a pleasure. I mean, I just love this movie. And um, when I was heading to the theater, I'm like, oh, I get to talk about this with you guys. And so <laughs> I was looking forward to it the whole time. That's awesome to hear. And, you know, two years from now, I hope we're still going to be going. I want to cover part two when it comes out. And if you're available, let me know, because we'd love to have you back on and we can follow Absolutely. up with part two. <laughs> yeah. That would be amazing. It's a date. Um, and also, if you get to have your show, which I'm knocking on wood and hoping and hoping and hoping it's going to happen. Um, yeah, Jade Legacy coming out soon. So many exciting things. Anything else you want to share with our listeners before you before you go? Uh, no, um, third book in, in the trilogy in the Green Bone Saga comes out soon. And, um, oh, you have a Patreon. Yeah. You want to tell, tell I do. I do have a Patreon. Yes. Uh, you can find me on Patreon. Um, and there I post extras, um, Green Bone Saga extras and uh, monthly Q and A videos. And yeah, it's been fun to have that too. If our listeners wanted to find you online, you want to share your uh, social media accounts? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Fonda J. Lee. I'm on Instagram at Fonda.Lee and uh, my website, FondaLee.com. So cool. Well, thank you again, Fonda, for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. So this was our Halloween episode. I know we didn't mention it earlier, but happy Halloween. (laughs) Hopefully you're all having a good uh, Halloween weekend coming up here. I'm excited for it. Um, I'm going to get to go watch some like obscure Japanese horror film, I think is, is the plan. So I'm excited about that. Sounds like a party to me. Yeah, it should be cool. Um, and speaking of Halloween, um, normally we cover a horror project um, at the end of, uh, of October to sort of bring in the uh, Halloween. But we didn't get to do that this year because of the way that <laughs> this movie panned out and when it was released. But what we're going to do is cover a horror project right afterwards. Um, and that worked out because over on Patreon, we put up a poll for our final quarterly uh, listener choice uh, project. And Carrie by Stephen King edged out uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by, I think, a single vote. Um, so if you want to uh, affect the uh, outcome of the, the podcast, you can come on Patreon and cast your votes in these things because, um, yeah, they're usually pretty tight. Um, but because of that, I think it works out because we're going to get to do a horror, you know, horror project um, that I'm definitely excited about. Fun fact, I was reading that Timothy Chalamet is working on a Wonka film right now. So he's like playing oh, a young yeah, Wonka. I think I heard that. So it's a funny how Wonka. things like tend to connect, even though we're not oh, covering it right maybe now. Maybe we should wait and Carrie. cover and because and, we will cover Willy Wonka at some point. Like I'm, I'm certain of it. So maybe that would be when to do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say like I, I'm really excited this because like it's Stephen King's first novel. It's, you know, this this incredible film that I've never actually seen and I've just heard great things about. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to cover Brian De Palma on the podcast. So, super into that. But um, if you enjoyed this episode with Fonda Lee on as much as we did, let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Or if you're on, uh, you know, YouTube or Facebook or something like that, you know, leave a comment, like it. Uh, and then share it. Tell a friend, uh, especially if you know anybody who likes Jade City. Let them know. Um, this is a lot of fun, and, and I just hope that uh, people get to listen to this. Um, such a cool project, and I can't believe we're here at the end of it. I can't either. At least we, we're we looking forward to a couple of years from now. It feels a lot like It, where we had the It Part 2 on the way. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. 
Connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And make sure to join our Council of Inklings. If you're in there, you can get a link to be a part of our Discord or just message us on social media anywhere. And our Discord's kind of been picking up recently. So it's been fun to connect with people more directly and intimately yeah. in that way. Yeah, the Discord's definitely a lot of fun. We'd love to have you on there. Just let us know. It's open to non-patrons now. Um, and we'll send you the uh, link so you can get in there. Also, we wanted to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. If you were interested in getting any of the Greenbone Saga books by Fonda Lee, which I highly recommend, uh, we have all of them on our bookshop, including the upcoming Jade Legacy, which you can pre-order. Um, if you use our bookshop, which will be linked in the description of this episode, um, then we get a nice little... I don't know, like a percent or something. It's cool. <laughs> they give it a little <laughs> kick from the from the site. So you get to help support the podcast and support Fonda. I mean, it's great. And you're not giving any money to Amazon, so even better. Yeah, so here we are at the end of Dune. I'm looking forward to part two, obviously, but we have Carrie next. Yeah. Stick with us. We'll have more projects on the way. Yeah, uh, this has been quite a journey. All we have left to do is, I think, do our sand walk off into the sunset. And until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.